Well, good morning, church family, and Merry Christmas. We're just so delighted to have you here with us if uh, you're feeling new here at Windsor Road. Uh, my name is Randy, and we really, uh, we really do hope that you walk away here with tidings of joy and, uh, and peace and good cheer. We, and, um, and we know who can bring that, and his name is Jesus. And we hope that you meet him today. And I want to look at a passage of scripture this morning that talks about the joy that some had when they met Jesus for the very first time. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And you'll find Matthew chapter 2 uh, in the New Testament. You'll find that on page 807 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take the, the copy that's in the pouch in front of you. And it, I, I would be delighted if you could just take it as a gift and put your name in it and uh, receive it uh, uh, as, as just your own copy of the Bible. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. So how much of this story do you think you really know? 
Typically, when we see portrayals of Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12, we'll view images in Christmas cards or pageants that'll look something like this. There are the three kings and, uh, and, and, and you know, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and there they are again on their way. And uh, there's another rendition and still another. I think that Mary's looking kind of Caucasian to me. And that, that one too. And that one. There they are. The three kings around the manger scene. Comes in Christmas cards. And often these kings appear as the culmination of the Christmas pageant. Right? You've got Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus there in the manger, and there are the animals, and then there's the shepherds, they show up, and then the three kings kind of bring closure to this, 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 this Christmas crowd, right? And you know the hymn, Kings of the Orient, that's what it's actually called, Kings of the Orient, uh, John Henry Hopkins. 1857, he was a pastor. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Ah. Enough. Yeah. I've done enough country music, I thought I should sing a carol, maybe. But, the best we could say of that carol and the whole pageant scene and the Christmas card, the best, most generous thing we can say is that it is an image Inspired by true events. Inspired by true events. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, here's what I mean. Let's first start with three kings. Oh, wait a minute. They weren't kings. What? What does the text say? It doesn't say they were kings. It says they were magi or wise men. Well, Pastor, maybe that's just Matthew's way of saying that they were kings. No, actually, that's Matthew's way of saying that they were magi or wise men. So they weren't kings. Okay? Furthermore, uh, you know, there weren't three of them. Well, there may have been three of them. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Church's tradition is that there were 12. Well, how many were there? We don't know. There was more than one. That's what we know. Now, there were three gifts. Okay, gold, frankincense, myrrh, absolutely. But we don't know that there were three wise men, okay? More than one, some say three, some say 12. There was plural wise men. And, and look where they show up. Huh? They show up after, after the birth of Christ. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, you see, so they, they didn't show up at the manger. They showed up after the birth. And where 
does Matthew tell us they appear? The house. Well, pastor, maybe that's Matthew's way of telling us, manger. Actually, that's Matthew's way of telling us house. Really? Oikos. House. So they came. And so we don't know that there were three. We know for sure they weren't kings. And they, but I've already sent my Christmas cards. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you. Don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. This is what it says. So often we kind of, you know, let our culture and let images from our culture determine what happened. And it really didn't happen that way. It happened this way. And some say, well, why does it matter since it's just all a legend? Ah, but Matthew didn't write to tell us that this was a legend. Matthew's intention is not fiction. Matthew's intention is history. And not just history, gospel history. The history of God's dealings with his people, with this world. God in the flesh, coming on a search and rescue mission. The true king who's come to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and life. That's why the apostle Paul would say in the letter to Titus that when the kindness and loving Mercy of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. He saved us. From what? Well, Paul says, we were once foolish. God in Christ came to this world on a search and rescue mission to rescue us from the foolishness of self-centeredness, from the foolishness of self-deception, from the foolishness of self-righteousness. And here in these verses we see today, Matthew 2, 1 through 12, the foolishness of self-sufficiency. This very American doctrine of independence and autonomy from our Creator. God sent His Son, Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to rescue us from the foolishness of self-sufficiency. And in this account, Matthew is trying to get us to make a decision between one of two kings that he wants us to choose. He wants us to make a decision about. Who will you follow as your king? And everybody here... Everybody here serves someone. And who will that be? Will it be the self-sufficiency of Herod? Or will it be the self-giving love of the one true king, Jesus Christ? Matthew's calling us to that decision. Even so very early in this gospel, he lays before us the choices the two kings that he wants us to choose. He front loads it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. You can see that. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, there's the true king. There's the one king. There's the eternal king. Or Herod. Herod. Whom will you choose? 
Well, Matthew tells us of magi who were faced with that very decision. And let's see what made them wise. Well, we've read part of Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Let's continue on. It says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men, or magi. Behold! That's Matthew's way of saying, Heads up! Pay attention! Don't miss this! The appearance of these wise men, the appearance of these magi, who were these strangers? Well, uh, in the New Testament, the New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and the word is actually magoi, magi. We get our word magic from it, or magician. The magi, the magi were an educated elite class of political advisors, That's who these were. They were were not kings, but they represented a king. They were like the national security advisors who were at one and the same time astrologers, magicians, priests, scientists, wizards, and sorcerers. If you think back through Bible history, uh, you would recall in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, who was emperor of Babylon, had a staff of magi with whom he consulted on political decisions. And you say, well, how could someone who's like a sorcerer, uh, you know, inform a king on a political decision? Really? I mean, is that really what happened? I mean, in, our, in American history, we kind of, you know, we kind of, uh, uh, you know, snickered at the idea of a, a former first lady looking at the horoscope and astrology and stuff like that. I mean, what, what is up with this? Well, you have to understand, you know, the first century world was not the West, not the, uh, not the age of reason or the age of enlightenment where religion and science get separated categorically. It's not the way it was the ancient world. Matthew says, behold, check it out. Astrologers are showing up. Sorcerers are on the search for the Savior. Wizards want to worship. Gandalf and Dumbledore have come to adore Christ. Behold, go figure. And they come with a question in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's talk about the star for just a moment. Now, in the ancient world, this would have been something that the Magi would have been paying attention to as stargazers and astrologers and sorcerers. For instance, did you know that uh, on the day of Julius Caesar's uh, burial on his funeral pier, um, there was a nova which appeared in the sky, uh, garnering the attention of the Romans there. And after this, uh, uh, people started paying attention to the stars as a sign that either a great leader was either dying or a great leader was born. And so this would have been something that Magi would have been paying attention to in the first century. In fact, three extra-biblical historians, uh, Tacitus, Uh, Suetonius and Josephus 
all of them in their histories write of a rumor swirling around in the first century that a leader of world dominion would emerge from Judea. From Judea. And when you couple that with the history of God's people in Babylon from where these magi came, when we couple that with the history in Babylon, in Hebrew exile, not all of the Hebrews returned to their homeland. Some of them stayed there in Babylon along with their culture and along with uh, the Hebrew scriptures. The book of Numbers gives this prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Listen, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. So a prophecy like this uh, could very well have been familiar even to Babylonian magi because of Israel's captivity there centuries ago. So you combine that and now the emergence of this star and the, the expectancy of a world leader coming from Judea. No wonder Matthew says, behold, pay attention. What was this star, actually? Oh, my goodness. Much has been written about that. Briefly, some conclude that perhaps the star was a conjunction of planets like Jupiter and Saturn and Pisces, uh, timed in God's timetable from the beginning of creation, such that it was signaled to these stargazers at that time the appearance of God's anointed. Others conclude that it's a comet. Uh, I just received a book this week, uh, and it's called The Christ Comet. It's a very persuasive uh, book that argues that, there, that the star was, in fact, a comet. Uh, and it's getting excellent reviews from not just theologians, but astronomers, and so... And then there's the option that God just simply supernaturally placed that star at that time. And that's not implausible. If you believe Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, why can't you believe that God would put supernaturally this star in the sky? You say, Pastor, which is it? I don't know. I don't know. And it's a wonderful subject to explore and to study and converse about. The how. I'm really interested in the why. Why that star was there. Well, think about it. Think about it. These magi are not respected kings. Rather, they're pagan specialists in the occult. They're professionals in astrology and magic and divination. They're blatant violators of that which the Hebrew Scriptures strictly forbid. I mean, everywhere in the Bible when the Magi show up, it's negative. 
except here in Matthew chapter 2. It's positive. They're coming to worship Jesus. So, I mean, why would Matthew include this point in his gospel unless it actually happened? Here's the lesson, just from verses 1 and 2. It's really important. Church family, we should beware of writing off the very people that God wants to reach. We should beware of having a narrower vision of who can come to Jesus than God does. We should beware of underestimating the spiritual potential of people we deem as unlikely converts. In your mind, you may be thinking, oh, this person in my life, they're never going to come to Christ. I mean, they're never. You know, I work with them. Not going to happen. We should beware of that, according to these verses. Behold, Matthew tells us, God is wooing worshipers even from among the priestly caste of a pagan religion. He's wooing them from Hogwarts, from Slytherin. God is drawing them to his son, even though the scriptures clearly condemn their vocation. Behold, behold, think about it. The first in Matthew's gospel to declare Jesus king of the Jews were Gentiles. They were pagan, astrology-infested, sorcerer-type, magician-type sinners. They're not kings. But they point to all the kings and all of the outsiders from all nations who are called to come to Christ. And had God not called them, had God not put his people in Babylonian exile before where his law would become a part of their culture. Had God not put that star in the sky, they would not have come. They came because God was calling them and drawing them and wooing them. You're here today. You're here today. Why? Well, because I decided that I wanted to come. Well, I'm glad you decided you wanted to come. And there's a God in the heavens who is sovereign over all, who is drawing you. He's drawing you. You responded to his invitation, even though you didn't even think you got one. Behold, Matthew says, No one is beyond the reach of God's hand. So, these political dignitaries called magi arrive in Jerusalem. And as political dignitaries, you understand they would have come, you know, with an entourage Possibly a caravan traveling under military protection, meaning more than camels, but war horses. What a formidable appearance this would be in Jerusalem. 
these outsiders who are coming under armed guard. No wonder they receive the audience of Herod. And their question, best question you can ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They ask that of Herod. Herod's going, I thought I was the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's a very specific statement. In other words, king by birthright. We want to know who that king is. Herod was not king by birthright. Herod was a puppet king of the Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar. Uh, He was appointed by Rome, although he was self-identified as king of the Jews, he wasn't full-blooded Jewish. (laughs) And he really wasn't a believer either. What he was, was a crafty, sneaky, clever (laughs) strategist. I mean, and he was an amazing uh, overseer of massive construction projects in Israel. Um, He gave Israel the harbor in Caesarea along the Mediterranean Sea. You can go there and see remnants of it today. Uh, He gave Israel um, uh, the temple. Uh, Josephus says that he spent an incalculable sum of uh, money to build the temple in Jerusalem. And then he built, this is Masada, which was a winter palace of his along the Dead Sea. It's an amazing structure. Sarah and I were able to see Masada uh, about 20 years ago on a trip that we went to Israel. And so this is just an interesting point of information. The Dead Sea is the lowest point in the world. And so when you get to the top of Masada, which is 1,000 feet up, so... Masada, the very top of Masada, is, is Champagne is 750 feet above sea level. So we are 750 feet higher here than the top of that there. And that's where Herod had a palace. And he built it, and I don't know how many slaves died making that happen. He was... An amazing builder, but he was cunning, and he was clever, and he was the ultimate survivor. He outwit, outplayed, outlasted his enemies, and if there was a whiff of rebellion in his ranks, he immediately eliminated the competition. He executed one of his ten wives and two of his sons when he suspected their treason, just suspected it. And the emperor, Augustus Caesar, once quipped that it's safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. That's the kind of guy he was. He was 
naughty. And now you understand verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled because of the type of man he was. Paranoid to the very end. But then it says in verse 3 that all Jerusalem with him was troubled. They were troubled not because of the Magi. They were troubled because of Herod. Because when the boss wasn't happy, nobody's happy. And he summons his religious scholars for a question. And he shouldn't have to do that. Because the king of Israel should also be a spiritual leader. But because this Herod is so biblically ignorant, he has to gather his religious scholars who tell him that God's anointed, the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, will be born in Bethlehem, King David's hometown, five miles away. I mean, less than the, dis- less than the distance between here and Stone Creek Golf Course. Right underneath his very nose. Verse 5 says, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that word shepherd is so important because God's intention for his kings would be that they would not just provide you know, martial law, but rather that they would provide guidance and pastoral care and a sense of compassion. That the king would, would minister to their spirits. But that just didn't happen the way God wanted it to happen. And so what Israel's kings failed to do well, the Messiah would now do perfectly. And that's when Herod secretly summoned the Magi and feigned interest in worshiping this Christ. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar. You know that's not his intention. And you know that by what happened in verses 16 through 18 of Matthew 2. When those little boys were massacred by Herod. Think about this for just a moment. He who was closest to Israel's faith was in fact furthest from Israel's God. Pagan astrologers were more in tune with God's will than Herod. It's true, isn't it? Sometimes those closest to religion are furthest from God. And then Herod would, self, would have self-identified as a pious Jew. 
a devout Jew. I mean, after all, he financed the building of the temple. But it's not enough to give money or energy to build a facility for worship. And it's not enough to merely hear the scriptures. Herod heard God's word about the Messiah, but what he heard did not lead him to worship Jesus. What he heard led him to want to murder Jesus. Herod, he succumbs to the lie of self-sufficiency. Do you know what the lie of self-sufficiency is? Self-sufficiency. It's, it's the lie that we Americans are independent and autonomous. It's the lie that says in our independence, we don't have to account to anybody. It's the lie that makes us say, it's my life, it's my body, I'll do with it what I want, I don't need help, I can do it myself. That's a lie. I mean, even Herod had to pay his lackeys for their loyalty. The fact of the matter is we're not created to be self-sufficient. We're not created to be independent. We're not created to be autonomous. We are not created to live for our glory. We are created to live for the glory of God. And you cannot live for God when you think you're God. Behold. Matthew says. Which king? Which king? Well, the Magi sought a better, wiser way. Scripture says that the star brought them to Bethlehem. Verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And their joy brought them to a house And they entered the house, it says, and they meet the child. And that little boy bashfully hides behind his mama's leg. And Mary marvels at these mysterious guests who fall and worship her little boy. Because this little boy is God in the flesh. Christ the Lord, the true King of Israel. And verse 11 says, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And they humbly offered very expensive and very regal gifts. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Unwittingly, they finance Jesus' family when they were refugees in Egypt. Verse 12 says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, that is the Magi, they departed to their own country by another way. And I hear a double meaning in verse 12. In one sense, for their physical safety, God led them home through another route, another way. And... In a spiritual sense, they had become followers of another way. The way, the truth, and the life. And they brought this news of their visit back home to their king. We have have met the king of kings, the true king, Jesus. 
You know, Matthew wrote these verses to churches across the empire. And when he first wrote this gospel, the church was becoming more diverse. The gospel, while drenched in Hebrew prophecies from Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Matthew wants us to know that the gospel was for all nations. Remember in Matthew 28, as Jesus gives the commission to go into all the world. Well, Matthew's front-loading that here even back in Matthew chapter 2. Hebrews and non-Hebrews, Romans, Greeks, Africans, Jesus is for all people. In our Advent reading, we heard Mary's song, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And God brought these outsiders to Bethlehem, and He's calling everyone. Furthermore, He is strong and powerful. He has shown strength with His arm, we heard in Mary's song of our Advent reading. It is a strength that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. It is a strength that gathers those on the margins of life to the very center of this child's life. And, hear me, it is a strength that will safeguard the Savior during the vulnerable years of his life. Think, Herod is only a few miles away. He is ruthless, he is brutal, he is cold-blooded. And Jesus is vulnerable. Jesus has no royal staff to care for him. Jesus has no armed guard to defend him. Jesus has no palace. Jesus has no army. It's this little boy king versus this evil pseudo-king. Who will protect him? How will Jesus survive to fulfill these prophecies of old? See, this is why Matthew says, Behold, behold, Herod's ambition is no match for a vulnerable child under the sovereign watch of his heavenly Father. Listen, in these days of domestic terrorism and racial strife and economic uncertainty, the same God whose arm is sovereign over his son is sovereign over you. Now, do you believe that or not? The Lord is my salvation. What can man do to me? Jesus' life will not be taken. He will give it. He will lay it down of his own will. And Herod stayed in power by taking the lives of those he ruled. And Jesus gave up power by offering his life for those he loved. And even in Matthew chapter 2, we see the shadow of the cross. We do. You see, just as Jesus met delegates of a king in Matthew 2, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he will meet another delegate, a delegate of the world's greatest king. He will meet Pontius Pilate, 
who represents Augustus Caesar. And Pilate will have different gifts than the Magi. Even though a dream warned Pilate to have nothing to do with him. Pilate's soldiers would be the first since the Magi to call Jesus King of the Jews. The first Gentiles since the Magi. And they would give him a crown, all right, but it wasn't made of gold. And they gave Jesus a throne, a Roman cross. And at that moment, on that Roman cross, instead of a bright star, there was an earthly darkness. And out of that darkness, a single Gentile voice would cry out, Surely, surely this man was the Son of God. The self-sufficiency of Herod, the self-giving love of Jesus. Can you hear what Matthew was saying? Choose. Choose. Choose the true king. Seek him. Get to him. Find him. Whatever it takes. However you can. Go. Amen.